I mean, if I, I if I happen to say on this podcast, I'll describe your I don't know sexual fantasies. I don't actually know them, and I don't want to. But if I did that, right, that you would be powerless. I would be revealing something about you that you felt that was your job and yeah. and purview to reveal. So this is this is very tight notion of power tied up in, in privacy. Episode 296, we're closing in on 300 of the Cyber Law Podcast, brought to you by Steptoe and Johnson. Thanks for joining us. We're lawyers talking technology, security, privacy, and government, uh, and the views expressed here today do not reflect the views of any of our institutions or our clients uh, or our family members uh, uh, or indeed our pets. Uh, uh, joining me today uh, are Michael Vadis, uh, who's the head of Steptoe's uh, Privacy and Cybersecurity Practice, uh, calling in from the New York office uh, to talk about the uh, California Consumer Privacy Act. Uh, Matthew Hyman, uh, who's a senior fellow at the National Security Institute. Formerly with the National Security Division at DOJ. Mark McCarthy is here, uh, senior fellow and adjunct professor at Georgetown University. Uh, and Nick Weaver, uh, always a crowd favorite, uh, senior researcher and lecturer in computer science at UC Berkeley. And as a special guest, we've got Bruce Schneier, uh, the uh, uh, man who needs no introduction when it comes to security and cryptography, uh, uh, who is the author of Click Here to Kill Everybody, a uh, book we uh, reviewed uh, with an interview on the air some time ago, and currently a fellow at the Harvard Kennedy School. Uh, uh, we'll be talking to him about face recognition. I'm Stuart Baker, formerly with NSA and DHS and the host of today's program. Uh, we wanted to do this earlier, but uh, because uh, it's the new year and now the California Consumer Privacy Act is sort of kind of in effect. Uh, and uh, uh, Michael has been spending the last several months talking to people about how to get ready for this. Uh, um, uh, Michael, uh, what are the highlights uh, now that it's in effect that people are discovering that they maybe didn't completely reckon with when they were getting uh, uh, started on this exercise a year ago? Yeah, so, you know, this is probably in my 30-plus years of being a, a practicing lawyer, this is uh, perhaps the worst drafted statute I've ever had to advise uh, clients or anybody else on. Um, it, it is just a mishmash of contradictions, ambiguities, uh, and just uh, grammatical errors. You know, some of the, some of the, the great uncertainties are uh, one, you know, one of the principal rights that the act creates is for consumers to opt out of a company's uh, selling the person's personal information. But no one really knows what constitutes a sale. There, there's, there's confusion. There are differences of opinion what constitutes a sale because the statute gives a very broad definition that basically says any disclosure for valuable consideration, including non-monetary consideration, constitutes a sale. But companies are taking very different views on what sorts of disclosures constitute a sale. There is uh, also total um, confusion over how to verify someone who makes a request. So there's a right to have a business delete your personal information. There's a right to know what information a business has collected uh, about you. But before a business responds to those sorts of requests, they are supposed to verify your identity. But no one knows what sort of verification is called for by the uh, CCPA. And so, you know, all these things remain to be determined. We're waiting for the California AG to finalize draft regulations that are supposed to become final before he begins enforcing it. But the regulations that he issued in draft form uh, towards the end of last year have actually caused more confusion than, than uh, they've allayed. So um, there's a lot that really remains to be determined. Well, the drafting process was completely um, uh, lacking in professionalism because it was really stuck together as a proposed uh, uh, referendum item uh, or initiative uh, and then was passed by uh, uh, the legislature maybe with a few tweaks 
just as a way of heading off the initiative uh, and with the expectation that would all get fixed in a later set of revisions, most of which didn't happen. So uh, the base draft was not produced in a very uh, professional uh, legislative fashion. Yeah, the base draft of the statute, that's that's correct. It's, it really uh, was done in such a hurry that, you know, there are things that are just totally redundant. There are things that are inconsistent. And as I mentioned, there are things that are just not grammatically correct. It's just bizarre. Uh, you know, I remember back in the days when the Patriot Act was passed, uh, people thought that was done in a hurry. Uh, this this makes the Patriot Act look like a, uh, a study in, in care and uh, carefulness. But, you know, now we've got these attorney general regulations, which were done in a more considered fashion, but they cause problems in two ways. One, they actually add more obligations on businesses than the statute creates. So they don't just implement the statute, but create new requirements. Uh, and two, things that really require clarification that, you know, the, the regs in, in many ways just create more confusion. Uh, and thousands of entities, people and, and companies have submitted comments, which the AG is supposed to respond to and then issue a, a revised draft in, in response to. But Nobody knows what this next draft is going to look like. Is he just going to basically blow off the, the comments that were received, or is he going to truly try to respond? We've got a hard deadline of July 1st when he can begin to enforce the final regs. So we know the reg, the final regs will be issued before July 1st, but companies may end up with very little uh, advance notice of what those final regs are before July 1st. So I'm, I'm struck by the uh, a couple of um, uh, controversial uh, implementations. Facebook uh, uh, pretty famously seems to have said, uh, this doesn't really require a lot of changes for us because we never sell the data. We just use it for, for advertising. Uh, and uh, um, they, they, it stri strikes me they have a, a reasonable argument that uh, the data never leaves their hands. Uh, they can tell people, we'll show your ad to people uh, uh, who have the following 16 characteristics, but we won't tell you who they are, so we're not trading in that uh, personal data. Uh, that obviously enrages the people who pass this to punish Facebook for Cambridge Analytica, and it cements uh, their dominant position in uh, a, a, as a major data hub. Uh, so that seems to have been an unintended consequence. I, I'm struck by, and I, I'm interested in how the dating I, uh, apps are applying these rules. Uh, Matthew, uh, uh, what are what are the dating guys saying about uh, CCPA? Well, they're not saying a whole lot because it seems like, uh, well, there was a, a story uh, recently talking about how Grinder and Tinder and others aggregate this very uh, sensitive information, particularly for Grinder, which is a, an app that is... Uh, and which asks you about HIV status. Right. Uh, which, of course, if you're dating somebody, you want to know, right? Right. And and the concern there, of course, is, you know, this is an app uh, primarily for homosexual men. And, it, and with it, you can get very specific location information about where that individual user is. So beyond CCPA, it also creates exposure if you're in a country that is not hospitable to homosexuals, such as um, Islamic countries in the Middle East and other places, um, it's not hard to pinpoint where that user is. But as far as CCPA goes, um, they are saying by signing our terms of use, you are agreeing to our using your data. You are forfeiting your right to complain about so it. So you're basically giving up all your rights under exactly. the CCPA. Did, uh, 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 Michael, do you think more, that works? More, more than that, they're, they're actually, uh, I, I think, taking the position that uh, by using our service, you are directing us right. to disclose your information, which, of course, is, exactly. is nonsense as a, as a logical matter. Well, uh, is, the it, is they, it? They, I, they I, style I, it that way is because there, there's a there's an exception in the statute to sale where you where you disclose something at at a consumer's direction. Well, uh, it, but the idea that using a service constitutes a direction is is a uh, fanciful well, at best. So I I understand that for advertising purposes, but the fact is, you are uh, you know if you say. I would like to find somebody who wants a date with me. Please give them this information about me. You are directing them uh, the, the, the transfer of that information to another person. To those people, yes. But, but to other businesses that then use the information for their own advertising or their own, their own uh, marketing right. purposes? I mean, I think that's, that's 
probably not, or certainly not within the user's contemplation, let alone uh, direction. Okay, so it's a question of who your directional will be honored in certain circumstances, but not uh, other circumstances. Uh, we're going to get to check in with you for sure in six months when the, the regs come out and the uh, enforcement actions begin. But uh, please come back and tell us the most ridiculous uh, uh, consequences of the CCPA, uh, and that'll be a continuing feature. Last week, we talked about a new Illinois statute that uh, purports to put limitations on artificial intelligence when used in hiring videos, which struck me as a remarkably narrow and not particularly effective uh, uh, piece of legislation. Uh, but there was a story in the paper this week, uh, Mark, that uh, um, puts uh, – Explains why people would be particularly interested in AI used to evaluate hiring interviews. Yeah, the, 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 a company named HireView. Yes. Uh, it provides employers with uh, technology to conduct video job interviews. And, and it recently added the capacity to analyze these videos using AI. It looks at words and grammar and facial expressions and voice tones to see if the applicant has some personality traits. Now, this tool looks to me like it's in serious need of validation. It uses totally invented traits such as neuroticism, which sounds more like a – Where you can get an 83 percent score or a 12 percent score. Yeah, but, but it sounds more like a porn category than a personality trait. But it, it seems to have something to do uh, with you, – you, you, you hang out in different porn channels. Uh, so, so I'm told. <laughs> um, but, but even the more recognizable characteristics that they're talking about like openness and, and, and extroversion and conscientiousness don't really seem to have any intuitive connection to job uh, validity. And, and, and yet – all that being said, employment screening needs some help. And well, you've got, a, you've, got a, you've got this mass of, of, of crapola that, 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 that comes in. This wave yeah. comes in and 90 uh, percent of it is completely uh, useless and you're only interested in three people. So right. – uh, and you're not going to spend the rest of your life trying to decide which of those uh, – which people you want to uh, hire. And, and uh, e even if it weren't a matter of time, I mean the judgments that you'd make intuitively tend to be insular and clubby and – they, they tend to perpetuate a uniform workplace rather than finding people who are really talented. So, so you're turning to these algorithms as a way to find the people that you're really interested. And, and some of the ones that don't work with video but use other characteristics seem to do a pretty good job. Um, but they also might reproduce employment bias. That's what Amazon found when it used its own internal I employment I am totally screen. skeptical of all these Claims of bias on yeah. AI. Well, Amazon found it, and that's why they dropped using their uh, their employment screening tool and and facial recognition systems. They found they found anecdotal problems. They I I I I question whether they actually did a reproducible study for bias. They just found a few anecdotes they did not like. Like and, if you went to a women's college, you've got lower scores. In, in, uh, in, in, in any case, they dropped it, yes. and for that reason. So I'm not going to – I'm just not going to accept people tell, talking about AI bias but, on this show until I see Until you see it better. Yeah. But, look, but, 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 I, but I wait, wait, that, wait. Facial recognition systems are notoriously bad at recognizing people of color. And so there's, there's a chance that they might be terrible at classifying them into so, job so qualification like, this, categories. This is yet another – Wait, wait, BS wait. bias claim. Well, yeah, they they but, are really but, bad at identifying people who wear glasses, especially if they only wear them sometimes. That's not so, bias. So the, That's so just the, a so, problem. So there's a, fi there's a fix. I'm sorry. Uh, it, it, the, uh, the, the effort to wipe out bias and AI strikes me. And I, I, I must say I, I need to dig into this. But it strikes me as a, an effort – to introduce quotas into all artificial intelligence programs at a stage where no one can tell there's a quota in effect. Uh, and going through AI results and saying, I'm going to look for anything that can be characterized as bias and then throw out or impose a, uh, a numeric target uh, in place of what the AI is finding is a way of turning AI into a quota machine. And if you want to call that a racist asshole, I think that's perfectly fair. So fortunately, Stuart, there's a way of actually finding out, which is 
to do a disparate impact assessment to see if the the, the tool really does have but a discriminatory all effect is, everything has on a, a prohibited basis. But the first thing you do is check. And if it does, then uh, the employer who's using the tool can decide whether he wants to take the risk of a disparate impact uh, challenge or not. If he doesn't know whether it has I, that, I, I, I do think you should this, know. This, you should this, know. This raises the question whether disparate impact analysis combined with AI uh, guarantees quotas for all purposes because uh, uh, you used to be able to validate it by saying these are – characteristics that produce success. But now, of course, people say, oh, yeah, success by your uh, uh, white bro culture standards, but that's just reproducing bias. Uh, I'm sorry. So I was struck, however, by the fact that if you're going to be evaluated for a hiring system by an AI system, you want to perform in a way that is likely to uh, increase your score. We've raised a whole uh, generation of people who worry about how to increase their score on every possible form of evaluation. And so if they don't know they're being evaluated by one of these systems, they have no idea that making eye contact uh, with the machine is an important characteristic or not. Right. So so the Illinois law, which says you have to tell people when you're using these systems, is probably a good idea. I'd supplement that with something that was in the Fair Credit Reporting Act, which is if you make an adverse decision about someone based on one of these systems, you, you got to tell them what the basis of that adverse action was. But, but of course, you've got a machine that, that, that will give them a score. It says, well, you, you, you scored low on this. Tell, uh, tell on, them what the score on, was. Uh, neuroticism. Tell, tell them what the score was. Yeah. I, I, I continue to be puzzled by people who claim that you can't uh, get AI to explain itself. Uh, they, they must know more about AI than I do, which isn't hard. But uh, I would have thought you could say, uh, all right, uh, uh, let's, let's, let's play with some scores. Uh, let's, let's give, give you slightly different uh, um, behavior by the same person uh, and see how much difference it makes. Uh, And in many cases, that will help you explain the decision that the uh, AI reached. You don't really know what the AI is keying in on. So the classic example is you want to build a machine learning recognizer to tell dogs from wolves. So you get a bunch of dog photos, you get a bunch of wolves photos, and you train it up, and you got a great recognizer at detecting trees and snow. Yeah. <laughs> right. So it, fine, but you ought to be able to figure that out. You ought to be – how hard is it to develop tools that will say, let's see what is most significant here in the decision-making process. We'll, cha- we'll start changing things and see which changes make a difference and which changes make the most difference. I, I, it doesn't strike me as – this is oversimplified, but it doesn't strike me as that hard uh, uh, to force some form of a- explanation out of the AI. It is actually a hard research area, and if you're serious about it, the NSF has plenty of funding for this because it is such a hard problem. All right. Okay. So uh, uh, the uh, uh, Cyber Law Podcast, now funded by the National Security uh, National Science Foundation. GRU has fished its way into Burisma Holdings. This was a kind of one-day story from Nicole Perlroth, if I remember right. Uh, um, uh, Matthew... Uh, the, the notion was, oh, the Russians are going to, to Burisma. They're going to be looking for evidence that uh, of Biden corruption, and they're going to use it to tilt the uh, the next election. Uh, um, but uh, the, the company that said this happened, Area One, um, didn't say much about how they knew all this was happening. No, no, they didn't. And um, you know, so where they got the information for this is 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 cloudy when you read the report they said there was a lot of fishing activity yeah. going on and, and well, duh. Uh, yes and 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 they make the point at the front end of their report that when it comes to these you know hacking events nine out of ten of them are fishing exploits that are successful the thing that struck me about this story was not so much the fact that the gru or whatever it's called now decided to fish burisma in the wake of the uh, impeachment hearings that began in the House started looking at this. It's the fact that they didn't do it sooner. Yeah, I mean, you do wonder what, what, 
you've got a former vice president's son sitting as a board member of a company called Burisma in the Ukraine. I'm shocked that that wouldn't have been higher on their priority yeah, list it's to poke around. Yeah, it's compromise, isn't it? Yeah. So uh, interesting. Uh, uh, maybe they did not think that uh, Biden was the front runner. Right? Uh, anyway, uh, I, I think – it, this will be interesting, uh, but uh, only if something emerges. Uh, uh, instead, what we got was uh, a whole bunch of uh, uh, leaked data about uh, is it Isabella dos Santos, mm. uh, uh, who is the richest woman in uh, Angola by a long shot, a billionaire, multi-billionaire, uh, uh, and and all of the correspondence between her and her. Um, uh, front corporations and all of the Western uh, enablers yeah. of those front com- uh, corporations has been uh, leaked to a bunch of journalists who are now asking tough questions about it. So this is a this is a feature of modern life that we are going to see over and over again. Yeah, it's very much like a sequel to the Panama Papers a yes. couple of years ago. Well, speaking of, of uh, the, the dysfunctional world in which we live, uh, uh, Nick, uh, uh, there's yet another Italian surveillance uh, uh, firm, and it is again in trouble for uh, how it chooses its targets. Uh, uh, how bad is this story? It's um, bad if you're worried about overconsuming popcorn. <laughs> this uh, surveillance firm actually came up with a great way of getting their surveillance mail code on the phone for legal purposes. You cut off the guy's phone system and send a pop-up message saying they need to install the spyware app in order to restore access. God, that's brilliant social engineering, isn't it? Yeah. Great for Androids. Doesn't work so good for iPhones. Right. And then – Good, work with the police, blah, blah, blah. The problem is, is the employees were using this stuff for um, other purposes, and that caused uh, issues. They, they, had, they, so, had, they had hundreds of people who, for all we know, were just ordinary citizens that they were uh, uh, exploiting, compromising, uh, playing tapes of them over the intercom system in the in, in the. Uh, uh, corporate uh, work center. I, it, it does sound like these guys were totally low rent operation from the beginning. Yep. And uh, they uh, look to be like they'll be in some legal trouble going forward and uh, break out your popcorn because it'll be fun. And, and I will. I, I, I just cannot resist a little drive by. Uh, this is the world that Apple has created by refusing to provide a, a legitimate controlled, uh, responsible access system. They've said, why don't you go out back and find somebody in the alley who can break into our phones? That's so much better for civil liberties. <laughs> well, except that these uh, rectal cranial inversion cases are locked out of Apple, too. So they were really only able to target Android. <laughs> oh, OK. So uh, there we go. Antitrust competition law increasing as, as everybody gets mad at Silicon Valley, it's increasingly the case that nobody trusts them. Everybody puts the worst possible construction on their activity. Uh, and Mark, uh, we've seen a lot of complaints that uh, big dominant companies like Facebook and Google and Amazon are exploiting their dominance uh, in ways that the antitrust laws ought to look at. Uh, uh, what, are, what are the latest complaints and what do you make of them? So uh, as part of a congressional hearing, uh, David Cicilline heard from a number of, of people who feel aggrieved uh, by, by the big tech companies. Tile says that, that Apple imitated its location technology and, and then they made it hard for consumers to sign up for its own app. And, and while I'm bashing Apple, which I'm just delighted to do, they did this by saying, oh, we're protecting your privacy. Protecting privacy. So we're going to have a, a, a program in which by default we know your location. But Tile, because, you know, privacy, oh, we're going to make them get uh, your permission over and, and over and over, and over again right. uh, while we use the same basic technology that they invented. Right. And, and so uh, it's a complaint. Sonos has another complaint. Uh, they say Google uh, and uh, and Amazon infringed on its speaker patents. Basecamp, uh, it has a project management tool that says Google allows the rival companies to to buy ads against the company's own name, which means the other brands show up uh, in in the you search know, I, results. I have to say, duh! If you're looking for 
programs that will you know do program management for you uh, and oh, the only one you remember is Basecamp you would like to see ads for other competing products that might be cheaper or more effective wouldn't you yeah but it's the it's the other companies who can use the uh, the the other their rivals name yeah. as a basis so, for, for as, buying as a, ads as a search yeah. term I I, 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 I I find this one this is this is trademark imperialism to me so, and uh, the the other one was was pop sockets which is it, it's hard to follow because it's been apparently a dispute for years and years and years pop socket they're, they're the people who do those little handles at uh, yeah, the I back love of iPhones things. right right amazon says it it, it required pop sockets to to sell their product to amazon and then amazon would resell it but they couldn't sell it directly amazon says no that didn't happen so uh, these all seem to me like relatively routine business and patent disputes so what is antitrust supposed to do about so these? So the problem, though, isn't, isn't the problem here that it, when you have a routine business dispute with somebody who's got an overwhelming negotiating advantage and an incentive to put you out of business, when they do something that looks like it's going to put you out of business, you think, well, this is – they're basically following their self-interest in a way that is indistinguishable from exploitation of a monopoly. Right. And so now what do you do? You say to Apple, uh, change your privacy rules to make it easy for competitors to you know, have their customers get access to their product. Okay, antitrust is supposed to do this. Um, a patent dispute. Should the antitrust authorities intervene in the patent dispute and say one of them is a monopoly? Should they prevent Amazon from acting as a reseller? Should they force it to just to be a platform? It's really hard to figure out what the remedies are in these kind of circumstances. I know the idea of creating a forum for complaints. It changes the atmosphere and makes it really easy to move ahead with some antitrust remedies, but it's hard to see how the remedies are targeted to these complaints. I think we're going to have to see what DOJ and the FTC come up with yeah, in the so next several I, months. I, I, that, that, I that's really where I, we're, this I, is going. I think they are going to find the best two or three cases and right. just beat the crap out of somebody. Uh, and uh, uh, the, uh, the trick for the really big Silicon Valley companies is to try to make sure it's somebody else who gets the crap beaten out of them. Right? Uh, uh, it, it, it's coming. Uh, I, I, this administration would have been a bulwark against that kind of use of the antitrust laws, and even this administration is going in the direction of using the antitrust laws uh, because of uh, hostility to Silicon Valley on the right. Uh, there's plenty of hostility on the left, so we're just going to get there. I do want to now turn to something that we covered last week. Uh, um, David Chris came on uh, uh, and uh, 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 talked about the FISA court, and I teased him about having been uh, appointed to the FISA court and getting a tweet from the president uh, 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 casting doubt on his uh, uh, conservative credentials, uh, to put it mildly. And uh, the Republicans have written a letter saying, uh, we really have problems with appointment of David Chris. Their letter is dated the 16th of January, and David Chris, who is nothing if not extraordinarily prolific and uh, uh, self-disciplined, had already produced his entire report as requested by the FISA court on the 15th. So it's a... Uh, it, it does show that if you move fast enough, you can outrun these Twitter storms. Uh, uh, his report itself is, I would say, unsurprising and not deep, right? It says uh, uh, more or less uh, what the FBI is proposing to do isn't enough. But then it, it, it talks about changing the culture of the Bureau and changing culture is always a soft thing. Yes, uh, uh, Director Ray should talk to people about this. And uh, uh, But it, it, it feels like us telling people they should uh, uh, send in uh, reviews and give us five-star reviews and mention us on Twitter. Uh, uh, you say that over and over again. You have no idea how much effect it has. Matthew? Yeah, I agree. I, 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 so, you know, David's report or the 15-page letter, as always, it's thoughtful. It's not extremely deep. And I, I think in a lot of ways, David is saying that Director Ray is headed in the right direction with most of what he's doing. He's just saying, here are some areas where I think you can do it better, where I think you could do it more thoroughly. 
There's one part in his report where he talks about separation of powers issues, and he says, you know, um, we're not presented with that right now, so the court should move ahead. But then David does seem to want the court to get very uh, proactive in its management of the FBI by saying that the court should almost mandate Director Ray and all of his deputies and on down the chain speak about this every time through 2020 when they visit field offices. And so I suspect that management at FBI would bristle at such micromanagement by the court, and rightly so, because they are a separate branch of the government. And I think David is also drawing upon his experience as a former compliance leader at AOL Time Warner when you think about culture in large organizations and how you push well, messages of change. Well, he was, a, he was change. a leader of this uh, of course. part of the Justice Department. So naturally, these are things he would have done. Yes. Uh, uh, they're probably not things the court should order. Well, right? Yeah, that's the other thing. And I, I, I have all the respect in the world for David and his knowledge of the FISA process and just David as a person. I've uh, been friendly with him for many years. Uh, but one, I do read this letter, sort of these are all the things that David would like to have. And he's saying to the court, these are the things that you might think about. I think David might also concede that he knows a lot of these the court's never going to demand, but he wants to put it out there in oh, public and, and form. God bless him, right? <laughs> yes, uh, exactly. It, it, maybe it's really an open letter to Director Ray. So fine. How to do the right uh, thing. Nice nice to do it in the context where you've been asked to do it by the court. Uh, The court, meanwhile, having stepped into this controversy, uh, is getting some unwanted attention from Mm. the Republican side of the aisle saying, hey, um, you know, FISA court, you got four of these applications and there was a lot of criticism in the papers about the decision to pursue this. What the hell did you do? Yeah. And I think – so that's where I think this this whole dynamic with David and the court, it's very awkward because typically this court in particular wants to stay out of the limelight for all the right reasons. And you would expect that the focus of congressional scrutiny would be on FBI and DOJ – and instead, it's focused on this court, which puts the court in a very weird position because yeah. judges are not natural advocates before Congress but, or anyone else. But, you know, this else. job that they're doing, it is, it is about 5 percent judicial mm-hmm. and 95 percent executive oversight. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, um, you know, with that comes uh, a, a certain amount of criticism. Well, exactly. And I mean, you know, if I if I'm remembering my history right, this goes back to Judge Silverman's criticism of the FISA law in 1978. He felt like that interjecting the court system in this process would take away accountability from the executive branch and would uh, make um, the it was sort of a moral hazard problem. Everyone's pointing to the other person mm-hmm. as, quote, owning it and being responsible for it. And that's kind of where we are right now. Kind of, I, I think that I, I actually sort of hope that the Judiciary Committee's do dig in and ask for records from the FISA court. I, I, I don't see why those records can't be subpoenaed at this point uh, um, in an appropriate uh, classified setting uh, to see exactly how they treated this and whether there was a blind spot, whether there was a partisan blind spot, uh, mm-hmm. or, or whether this was just uh, a failure to uh, uh, to dig in. Did they actually know uh, that the uh, um, the work that was done, uh, you know, on the dossier was done for a campaign? Everybody says, well, you, they ought to be able to figure it That's out. The but footnote. So, so somebody should uh, ask them, what did you know? And when yeah. did you figure it out? Uh, and what did you do about all the stuff that was in the the papers suggesting that, uh, for example, Carter Page had actually worked for CIA. the CIA, or at liaised with the CIA. Yeah. CIA. But that's a question you would think somebody would have asked. Um, it's, uh, I, I think we'd, we'd probably end up a better educated populace if there was some inquiry into that. And now there's some partisan reason to do it. So maybe we'll get it. I think that's right. I, I, I think the other thing that just as someone that you know, uh, represented the government before the court for a number of years. The thing that really concerns me about all this is FISA is such an important tool for national security. Uh, yeah. It is absolutely a it is a crown jewel in terms of being able to acquire information that is absolutely critical to national security. And what I hate about this is because the FBI dropped the ball so terribly that 
the utility of that tool may now be in jeopardy. And I would hate for anyone's reaction to this to be, let's get rid of FISA or let's gut FISA. Because right. if we do that, the fallout from that is far greater than the mess we're talking about right now. Right. So the, the, it's been criticized from the left for mm -hmm. years and years and years. Uh, and uh, you do kind of wonder whether uh, the result of this is that the right suddenly decides to embrace all the right. left criticisms when probably what the right should be worried about uh, uh, now uh, and in the future is misuse of FISA for partisan purposes. That's that's what everybody suspects went on here. And anything you can do to make that fear or that suspicion uh, go away is good for democracy. Yeah, exactly. So let's let, let, let me just ask Mark, the EU is all of a sudden there's a hundred things happening in the EU, uh, in the uh, ECJ, mainly European Court of Justice, uh, um, uh, including interpretations of GDPR. None of these are exactly binding. They seem to be advocate general uh, dis essays. Uh, mm -hmm. um, and uh, uh, my quick assessment is they said, oh, well, that privacy stuff, that doesn't apply to you if you're a good academic. Uh, we've got special rules for that and you can just waive all that right, stuff. Right. But if you're a national security official uh, trying to protect against terrorism, we've got a double GDPR to apply to you. <laughs> Yeah, there are lots of ways of taking that uh, report from the EDPS on, on scientific research. I, I want to focus on, on the implications for access to data that are held by social media companies. Um, the question is, when should external researchers have access to that data and, and for what purposes um, they should want to look at whether or not the social media companies are doing well in the fight against disinformation and hate speech? Now, Facebook has already said they want to share that information with Social Science One, and there have been some criticisms. But, but Facebook says uh, you have to be careful about conforming to data protection laws, and we want to properly yeah. anonymize it before we let it out. Well, the EDPS seems to take the side of the researchers and against the, the privacy advocates and to downgrade privacy concerns. Well, because privacy law is all about enforcing class rules. And uh, uh, academic researchers are in a higher class than people who just earn a living uh, uh, selling advertising. Well, That's they, like their view. It, they can't quite get away with it, though. I mean, they, these, they do say that resistance to greater, greater transparency is justified on questionable grounds of data protection. So they say the grounds are questionable, but it's not clear from the report how EDPS would justify the processing of identifiable social it. media it's, it's data. They, they said, well, the academics, they have an ethical uh, framework <laughs> and the ethical framework says we don't have to, to obey all of these silly GDPR rules. If you, uh, if you read it carefully, <laughs> it's got to go through the standard grounds for processing data. And, and it recognizes that consent isn't going to do the job because, right. I mean, you've got Cambridge Analytica had the data on 220 million people, so you can't get consent from all of them. But they had consent and, and, from everybody who had control of that data. Yeah, well, but not from the 220, right? Uh, and, and it doesn't even mention legitimate interest at all, uh, right, in the, right, in the conversation. And it says if you're going to use public interest, there has to be new legislation from the EU or the, the national governments. So it looks as though the data protection concerns from the social media companies are not questionable at all. Now, now I'm, I'm sympathetic to the idea of researcher access, right. but, but this idea that you-, you Being a researcher yourself, yeah, I would expect so. But, 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 but there, it has to be done <laughs> properly and it has to be properly pseudonymized and- Yeah, anonymized and sauce and so for the goose is and, sauce for the gander. And, 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 and if you're going to do it with identifiable data, yeah. that does take a new law and EDPS actually recognizes that. So as much as it wants to be on the side okay. of the- So after, knows after, it, after all- all the warming up and saying, of right. course, the, the researchers get this and there's all kinds of good reasons. They end up saying, but uh, we Here's what they sure say. A there. public interest basis under data protection law for dominant companies to disclose data to researchers would need to be clearly formulated and laid down in EU or member state law. It's not there yet. Okay. All right. So, um, uh, very quickly, uh, um, Let's just run through the stories I, I, uh, that uh, uh, we uh, are scanting. Uh, Erdogan is is bowing to the, the Turkish Supreme Court uh, and reinstating access to Wikipedia. Kind of a surprise that the court uh, said there was a right and kind of a surprise that Erdogan said, oh, all right. Yeah, I think it's a reflection of Erdogan's weakened political uh, uh, yeah. position in Turkey 
And I think it's also one of those justice delayed is justice denied because they've been without Wikipedia for years now. So whatever they, he was worried about in terms of the connections Wikipedia was making between the Turks and yep. militants in Syria, it's it's yesterday's news. OK. Um, Department of Interior grounds all its drones because it has just discovered they're made in China and that the data may be going back to China and or could go back to the, uh, China. And they've decided that's uh, uh, too great a risk. Uh, yeah. Surprise? Uh, uh, broader lesson? Uh, I think the broader lesson is you should pay attention to where you buy your stuff from, given that 70% of drone technology comes from a Chinese company called DJI. And, uh, you know, if you're going to use stuff and there's a worry about China, you might want to look at where it's made. Yeah. So they, I, uh, you know, I bet they'll be selling them cheap. Everybody should uh, call the Interior Department and offer to buy the, uh, uh, the drones. China's APT-40 got doxxed by intrusion truth. Nick, uh, uh, any broader lesson from that or, or, or just uh, more popcorn? Uh, OPSEC is hard. Um, and maintaining OPSEC for something that needs a lot of personnel is harder. Okay. Uh, Clearview is a little app company that apparently scraped a whole bunch of facial uh, data off of uh, uh, Facebook and uh, Twitter and a variety of other places and is using it and is surprisingly finding criminals. It sold this uh, product to uh, uh, the um, uh, law enforcement authorities in several states. Uh, and they're actually catching crooks uh, by identifying them using this system. So naturally, the ACLU think it's the, the the, the end of the world. Uh, um, we're gonna we're gonna hear a lot about this. My prediction is that the companies that thinks their think their data was scraped are gonna sue Clearview uh, for a violation of their terms of services, so that they can be privacy heroes uh, while continuing to work on their own facial recognition technology. That sounds right to me, but I, I do think on the use of that technology, there should be some more transparency about when government agencies are using them. They should be subject to some sort of public account rather than just hiring the, the, the vendor and, and using the stuff without anybody else knowing about it. Yeah, I, I, that, that doesn't sound I, – I, I am generally in favor of more transparency on how AI works. I, uh, I just uh, I reject the automatic – uh, uh, implication of bias. Uh, uh, I, I, I think that's just social justice uh, uh, warriors in academia uh, uh, getting their chops. Uh, and uh, Treasury has issued uh, firmer regulations uh, uh, laying out some of the standards for how it's going to apply the new CFIUS rules. Uh, uh, lots of detailed uh, uh, decisions in that, uh, mostly not surprising for those of us who follow it. Uh, so I'm not going to spend too much time on it. Uh, yes, Nick. The NSA dropped a really easy to exploit vulnerability to Microsoft so they could patch it. You're right. I forgot to mention that uh, um, this is a uh, it's kind of a PR coup for the NSA. They've gotten a lot of credit for having uh, identified this and instead of exploiting it, uh, uh, telling Microsoft to fix it. Uh, um, and I guess they deserve it, although I'm I've heard people question whether this was really as good good and exploit, especially for uh, Oh, yes. You think it is, huh? Okay. Oh, yes. All right. Okay. Kudos to Ann Newberger at uh, the Information Assurance uh, Arm for uh, jamming uh, that uh, uh, decision through and uh, to uh, Microsoft for getting it patched. Uh, so I'm pleased that uh, today we also have an interview with uh, Bruce Schneier, who, as I said at the intro, has, has is all everything in uh, security and cryptography and a, a thoughtful uh, a man whom we've had on the, the uh podcast several times. Uh, Bruce, you've got a um, op-ed in the New York Times today about facial recognition. And I don't know if we agree on everything on privacy, but um, you seem pretty skeptical as I am of this kind of sudden discovery by the press that uh, it must be the Antichrist who invented facial recognition and we we just it, everything about it is evil. Um, uh, maybe you could uh, could give me your more nuanced view about facial recognition and its contribution to our privacy woes. So what I'm writing about in, in the essay is about us being identified without our knowledge and consent. Facial recognition is 
the most obvious salient, you know, we see it in movies, the way that happens. And that's computers automatically recognizing, identifying you based on your face. It's something that is in the public. Uh, there have been bans locally, police using it, being used by private uh, corporations. There was a move to ban it at music festivals, another move to ban it on campuses. I mean, I actually think this is a, a good tactic because it puts public focus on this technology. But what I argue in, in my essay is in some ways it's besides the point because it's not about facial recognition per se. It's about surreptitious identification. And there are lots of ways that is done. That could be done through your phone. Sure, your phone it, company it, it, knows where you are based on your phone, or, or just Wi-Fi. Your phone is right? you, sending out a MAC address. Yeah, you're 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 offering people uh, Wi-Fi, and they're saying, "Well, here's my identification. Uh, it, it, it's not it's not your name, but it allows them to figure out uh, who you are and where you are located." And that is being used by retailers to track people as they go through their stores, and. People can be recognized by their gait, by their iris, lots of different biometrics, lots of different technology about them. And these are all being used. And to me, the real policy discussion should be around this bigger issue. When is it proper for us to be identified without our knowledge and consent, but either aren't, aren't by we, aren't we, aren't we really citizens, corporations, police, governments, anybody? Aren't we already uh, pretty you know, three months pregnant on this one? Uh, uh, we have uh, license plates on our cars that are designed to uniquely identify us wherever we drive. Uh, and as somebody who for 10 years had crypto as my uh, uh, license plate, uh, believe me, everybody knew where I was parking. Uh, and uh, uh, when we walk out uh, in a neighborhood where we are known, people recognize us by our face. Uh, I, I, I feel as though we've kind of um, surrendered the principle that we shouldn't be identified in public. Uh, uh, and instead, we're arguing for something different, but we don't know exactly what. So this is interesting because this is a place where a difference of degree causes a difference in kind. Your two examples are, are, are good. Your license plate will identify you uh, indirectly. Right? So you, you imagine back when cars were invented, someone says, you know, we need to know who owns the cars because they're hitting things. So let's put people's names on the back. And somebody else says, no, 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 wait. That's ridiculous. It's a privacy invasion. Let's put a random number on the back and we'll give the government – basically a database of random numbers and people and they can go to that database when they need to identify a car, right? And, and, and that made sense as a compromise. And you can only be you identified in, by police. Right, you who, walk in public right. and you are identified by people who know you. Yep. That makes sense in a small town in, 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 or even in a city. What's changing now is that can be done to everybody all the time. Right? There are vans that drive around scanning license plates continuously. Some airports scan every license plate in the parking lot every night. And I'm, uh, some, I, I have to say I'm a beneficiary of that. that. I, I, I'm a the, beneficiary of, the, the, of that uh, activity because uh, one time I lost my car. I wasn't sure which – Part of the parking lot I had parked in, which which floor, uh, and uh, a, a guy uh, in the booth said, "Oh, I can tell you." <laughs> right. So exactly. So the difference in degree, making it easier, makes for something possible that wasn't possible before. So these things are changing, and this is where I want the discussion to happen. It is not the same thing when you get identified by people who know you and walking around, when everybody in the city is identified all the time as they walk everywhere. That's a different animal. But it is Just true. Just like it's a different animal when you were able to go and say, where's my car? Yes. So I, 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 I agree with you on that it is different. On the other hand, the idea of saying you need to consent to it strikes me as putting a very high barrier because, of course, you're out and about. You're not signing forms. You're not on, online uh, uh, where somebody can present you with a consent form. Uh, uh, you're in public, uh, and no matter how people provide notice, they ain't going to get the consent uh, uh, in a way that they can rely on. Exactly. And you are engaging in the thoughtful conversation that I would like to hear. That's an opinion. There are other opinions. We can discuss this. What does it mean 
to have consent when computers are no longer mediated by screens, right? I mean, the notion of consent works when I go to a screen and a keyboard and type something in, but it doesn't work in the world when I'm out and about. So what other mechanisms are there? I mean, so that is the discussion. Of course. We are moving into this world of ubiquitous surreptitious identification. So the, and what does that mean? And then – so in the essay, I, I sort of give three steps because mm-hmm. identification is the first first part of a chain. Once we are identified, data about us is correlated with other data. So when a store identifies you, they just don't say, ah, I know your name. They pull up your buying history. Maybe go to a data broker and purchase your employment history or your income level or your interest or things about you. And then – they use that information to discriminate. And I don't mean that in a necessarily derogatory term. They make decisions based on it. You walk into a store and I'm imagining a future. You are identified. Your history and buying patterns are collected and you are treated differently. Yep. Now, we might be okay with this. I mean, I actually like that if we could fly a program in my airline. <laughs> I am treated better because I fly a lot. Yes. But there I'm consenting to it. What does it mean when we don't? Now, I don't think I have the answers here. What I'm saying is these are the questions. Right? These are the issues. This is the world we're moving to. And we should, with some deliberation, think about it and not let for-profit corporations just make it up as they go along. So I, I agree with you that um, – Practically everybody, you know, 85 or 90 percent of America now gets to spend some time as a, a disadvantaged minority ripe for discrimination. Everybody who ever voted for President Trump feels that they are the subject of discrimination in public and with most of Silicon Valley. Everybody who didn't vote for Trump believes that Trump is about to oppress them all. And so there we are. We got 90 percent of America sure that these algorithms are going to sooner or later um, disadvantage them. And it makes sense to try to say, well, at least we ought to have some transparency about what's happening to this data behind the scenes. Uh, um, But again, when you ask, how do you do that? You know, the the California CCPA says you have to tell people uh, the categories of data that you're gathering uh, and what you're doing with it. And then they give categories that are kind of utterly meaningless. So, you know, they say, oh, yeah, we, we use this to uh, uh, target ads. Well, oh, so what? I, I, I really want to know, oh, how are you screwing me? And it's very hard to express that. And, <laughs> and the devil's in the details here. Sure, we have a Vermont law requiring data brokers to register yep. just their names and the kind of what they have. So we're starting to see little bits of transparency. Now, I tend to like transparency even if people don't actually pay attention Truth in lending laws that banks have to follow protect us even if I never read the details in the same because way. Because they're, they're, they're written, because watchdogs do read them. Yeah, so this so is, I this tend is, to this like these like, transparencies, but you're right. They have to be meaningful in some way. Isn't this like the uh, the case for uh, the, the, these endless uh, uh, consent forms uh, that uh, the, uh, social media provide now, where you consent to all these things, the terms of service, nobody reads them except somebody who is paid by EFF to sit in a, a cubicle and read them and to complain when they think they find something that's uh, yeah, abusive. I think we've all realized that notice of consent only goes so far. Right. But that's, and, that's, and I think it's going gonna, it's gonna to disappear with the Internet of Things because simply there's no way you can consent to a vacuum cleaner or uh, a camera that or a baby monitor or a, a refrigerator. I mean, the things without keyboards and screens don't lend themselves to consent. I, you know, we know there are billboards out there that do – Scanning. They don't do individual recognition, but they, they can rec- recognize age and gender and modify ads accordingly. How do you consent to that? You kind of can't because as you say, you're walking around outside. So, so we do need some other model. I don't know what it is. This is why I rely on like you attorneys to come up with like more suitable regulatory structures 
for these kind of ambient things. I mean, this isn't the first example of it, so we have to have analogies somewhere. Yeah, sometimes uh, uh, attorneys throw up their hands and say, we don't want process, we just want to allow people to sue for the uh, results that they don't like. So you could, you could come up with something that just says, if somebody ends up harmed by uh, the uh, collection of the data, the processing of the data, the decisions that are made. Uh, uh, one, if they complain, they get to see how the decision was made. And two, if it hurt them, uh, uh, it, the burden's on you to show that that uh, harm was justified. Uh, and, and otherwise so you pay for it. that sounds like it'll work. I mean, I, I, there are, we have issues in the United States, at least, that privacy harms are defined very narrowly. You have to show monetary harm. Right. It isn't enough that right. You know, you were embarrassed. Uh, you know, you, you you now feel powerless. That you know, I mean, a lot of the harms of privacy are fuzzy. So if we do if we do better at defining privacy harms. That could work. I tend to like law that is non-deterministic. That can that can evolve with norms, evolve with technologies, as opposed to statutory law, which yep. tends to be much more rigid. So I kind of like that. But we have to get harms done right. So uh, I, that sounds good. So here's my, here's my concern about the, the, the notion of saying, well, these are harms, uh, these are abstract harms, but they, they leave, we know we feel them. Uh, and I call this the Louis Brandeis problem. Uh, Brandeis wrote The Right to Privacy. You ought to read it. He, he's, he comes across as some, some kind of snob and combination snob and wuss uh, because he's complaining that ordinary people can keep track of what he's doing by reading the newspapers and that anybody – Anybody feels free to just take his picture without his permission uh, and publish it. He's uh, just shocked that someone would do that. Uh, I mean, it, it does seem quaint today, but you do have to read it for the times. But I think you are right. Today, that seems ridiculously quaint because here we are being photographed. Our license our plates are scanned. We're carrying our right. cell phones 24-7. And we it's get a used way to it. different world. So this is if you want if you want the notion of harm to uh, – evolve with uh, society, you have to recognize that we develop privacy calluses. And we just – we start to say, oh, yeah, my nose looks big in, in photos, but that is apparently the way I look. Uh, I just have to live with it even if I don't like people taking my picture. <laughs> and then also the harms change. Right? The harms then were different than the harms today. Yeah. And I mean Daniel Solov I think is a nicely nuanced view of privacy. It's well entwined with power. An ability to control your information, my information. I mean, I mean if, I, I, if I happen to say on this podcast, I'll describe your, I don't know, sexual fantasies. I don't actually know them and I don't want to. But if I did that, right, that you would be powerless. I would be revealing something about you that you felt that was your job and, yeah. and purview to reveal. So there's this, there's this very tight notion of power tied up in, in privacy that, of course, I don't think Brandeis gets to, or at least he gets to it in his time, not in our time. Yeah. So I, it, one of the things that will be interesting is is uh, whether revenge porn turns out to be just a moment uh, and then we all evolve into what did you think was going to happen when you took that picture uh, or whether we decide, no, that is a betrayal that uh, uh, a society will condemn for the long haul. Nah, I, I, I'm not sure about that. Uh, but this is the other problem and uh, this will be the topic we close on, I think, uh, is the fact is that the one thing we know about our private data is that Next year, it will be easier to collect, cheaper to collect. It'll be cheaper to process and easier to process and cheaper and easier to store. And so when we say we want to own it, we want to control it, we are doing what the uh, the recording industry tried to do in the 90s to say, hey, we own this. Every 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 digit of our song is is owned by us. And they, they just lost that fight. And I can't help thinking we're going to lose it too, just the way Brandeis lost his fight to, to hang on to uh, uh, his ability to keep people from taking his picture. You know, we might, I, I am, I'm more optimistic. You know, I do think that we have the ability to change what seems like inevitable technologies. Right? You know, chimneys are invented, and we have no choice but to let you know seven-year-olds go down them and clean them. We just can't do anything else. I can't imagine any other world. You know, we can. 
we can decide that even though technologies exist, that they shouldn't be used in certain ways. We do it a lot. And we have to decide we want to. I mean, right now we don't. And you're right. We don't have the appetite for this kind of of discussion, this regulation that goes against the big internet industries. I mean, well, no one has the appetite it's, for that. It's not just the so, – so, it's not just internet. That has to change. It's not just industry here. Uh, you know, the, the, the emergence of enthusiastic doxing on both sides of the political aisle is an embrace of weaponization of uh, uh, the loss of control of private data uh, That's right. that people aren't going to want to give up. Uh, it, it, you're not going to no. be able to say it, it, is, it, it is immoral to dox, I don't think. I, I am I am more optimistic. I think okay. we give up those tools pretty regularly. It you know it takes a fight sometimes. All right. But I'm you know I'm, I'm more optimistic on the fundamental morality of our species. Okay. Well, I love that. <laughs> uh, and, and that's a note to close on, Bruce. It's terrific to talk to you. And uh, let's get you on again soon. Thanks for having me back. All right. Well, many thanks to Bruce Schneier. Uh, that was terrific. Uh, also to Michael Vadis, uh, Matthew Hyman, uh, Mark McCarthy, and Nick Weaver for joining us. This has been Episode 296 of the Cyber Law Podcast, brought to you by Steptoe & Johnson. Uh, I promised to read reviews on the air, and we got a new, another one from Nick uh, McKen, who says, uh, It's a rare find, but this podcast straddles the two spheres of cybersecurity and law slash policy. The area where these two intersect is dynamic and ever-changing and makes for some fascinating discussions. I usually consume this podcast the day that it drops. That's that's nice. Uh, so uh, thanks to Nick uh, uh, McKen, and uh, please join us again next time as we once again provide insight into the latest events in technology, security, privacy, and government.